This Sunday, we're continuing on in our series in 1 Corinthians. Um, and uh, Paul, in, in this little section, he's coming to the end of a conversation that he's been having um, within the context of food and kind of the culture of Corinth. Um, last week, Kevin gave us a great uh, cultural explanation of how food was intertwined with this idol worship and how there was all these problems going on with these people. And today, um, Paul is going to kind of wrap up this conversation here at the end of chapter 10 and the first verse of 11. Um, So I'm going to go ahead and read that for you guys because we're going to go away from it for a second and then we'll come back. So uh, this is 1 Corinthians 10, 23 through 11, 1. It says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, This has been sacrificed, or this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, for the sake of the one who informed you, and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that which I give thanks. So whether you eat or drink, Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of the many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Let me pray really quick. Uh, Holy Spirit, Lord, um, fill this place God, fill this room, prepare our hearts, prepare our minds, uh, give us just the clarity and direction that you promise. Help us in this time of need to learn and to hear your word, maybe fresh and new. If it's scripture we've heard a hundred times, Lord, I pray that this would wash over us as if it was the first time we've heard these words. Lord, thank you so much for your, uh, your, your trustworthiness, your faithfulness, and that your promises can be counted on. In your name we pray, amen. Um, so uh, during the week, not right now because it's summertime, but during the weeks, I am a teacher. I teach high school, ninth graders and 12th graders. I get a great view of both ends of the spectrum, and I love it. Um, and one of the things that we do uh, as we set up our lessons for the day is uh, we'll, we'll kind of like, we'll, we'll explain this main idea to our students. So we'll give them this idea. And, and right here at the beginning of uh, our, our section, there's a little section heading in your Bible. So if you have your Bible, you can look at it right there. And it says uh, at the top there, do all to the glory of God. And so that's our main idea for today. That's kind of, as I was going through this and, and trying to like pick apart and figure out how many times Paul says conscience and, and just get down to what's happening, this just kept coming back. Do all to the glory of God. So that's our main idea. And then the second thing I do for my students is I offer them an essential question. 
How essential is that question is still to be determined, but we offer this question and it can be something that we answer at the end of the lesson, maybe the end of the unit, the end of the year. Um, But for today, I wanted to offer you guys this, this question to focus our thoughts, to focus our minds as we go through this. And our essential question for today is, does my life reflect the glory of God or the glory of the world? And, uh, as I was going through this and trying to figure out all of this stuff, I realized something. I've grown up in the church. I've, I've lived my entire life going to church. There was, I, don't, I don't remember a time when I was not going to church or, or having this piece of culture in my life. But there was always times when I had no clue what people were talking about. I would hear words and I would go, they sound really confident that they know what that word means, and I don't know what that word means, but maybe if I insert it into my prayers, or if I use it in my greeting, or if I do this with it, someone's going to think that I got it together, and, and it'll all be okay. And I slowly started to realize when someone asked me in our, in our uh, prep for this, they said, what is glory? I was like, I should know that. That should probably be something that I understand, right? And, and I don't know if you're in the room, maybe this is the first time you're here. Maybe you've been here for a long time. But sometimes coming back to these words, these things that we think we just know, but really don't have a full understanding of, it's worth it to take a little bit of time to kind of sit in that camp. So what we're going to do is before we get back and really dive into the, the Corinthians text, I want to take a, a few minutes, maybe 10 minutes, I don't know. We did time it. It could be about 10 minutes. Uh, and uh, we're going to sit in, what is this glory of God? Okay, so um, what's the first thing you do when you don't know what a word is? Look at a dictionary. So pulled out my dictionary, looked up glory. There was all of these uh, different definitions. And, and, and the definition that I, that I sat with and was like, oh, this makes the most sense to me, is glory is high renown or great beauty. And most of you are like, yeah, that probably, that makes sense. I understand that. And that's the word, right? That's the word glory. You can apply that to a lot of things. I can have a glorious meal of high renown and great magnificence. But what is the glory of God? To answer this question, we're going to go back in time. Okay, uh, if you guys have been going to Anthem for a little while, uh, we did a series, um, I think it was back around Christmas time, uh, called God Has a Name. And in that series, uh, we, we looked at um, uh, Exodus 33 and 34, and, and we, we looked at this idea, or not this idea, this experience of Moses meeting God on the mountaintop and God revealing to Moses his name. Um, in Exodus 33, verses 18 and 19, uh, Moses says to the Lord, it says, Moses said, please show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will make my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. So this idea that Moses was seeking something that he didn't see, he didn't know, he wanted to know. It was this mystery, this glory of God. It was, I have to imagine he was pleading. He's like, God, hey, please, Please, I know, this is, I know this is something great, but will you please show me your glory? And the Lord says, yes. He says, I will make what was invisible now visible. 
So the glory of God is, is these, these magnificent, beautiful qualities of God that have been invisible and now made visible. So what we haven't seen, we now see. And what are these qualities? And specifically, Jesus, or, uh, the Lord lays them out. He, he says exactly what they are in the next chapter in Exodus 34, uh, verses 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him, before Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will by but will who but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. To sum this up, God's glory is made known to us. Those invisible qualities made visible through his mercy, his grace, his patience, his love, his forgiveness, and ultimately his justice. Now, something that I love about that story of Moses is when he comes down off this mountain, his face is glowing. Like it's literally glowing and people are kind of like nervous about it. It's, it's this weird like, what happened up there, right? And uh, when, as I was reading through the Corinthians chapter, I was, I was realizing that, that this idea of reflection, right? When Moses' face is showing He's reflecting this glory of God that when he encountered the Lord, it, he couldn't even help it. He just, he was showing God's glory to, his, to, to the people. Our lives should reflect these attributes. These, the goodness of the Lord, his mercy, his grace, his love, his patience, his kindness, his forgiveness, and his justice. But when we don't, things kind of go off the rails and they get a little confused. And as Paul is talking to the Corinthians, they, they're, they're kind of missing the point on some of these, uh, some, of their, some of the ways that they're living their lives. They've been worshiping idols. They've been doing things that just don't jive with God's glory. Um, last week uh, in Kevin's uh, sermon on uh, dining with demons, I love that name, uh, we, we, get this, we get this idea in 1 Corinthians 10, 21. He says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. The Corinthians weren't glorifying God with their lives, so what were they glorifying? Something else. They were holding something else in high magnificence and renown. Likewise, when we're not living for God, when we're not reflecting the glory of the Lord, we're reflecting something else. We're going to do something. We're going to reflect something. We're going to be changed into something. So why not be the glory of God? So how do we do this? <laughs> this sounds like a huge task. I'm not Moses. I'm not going to go up on this mountain and have this experience and come back glowing because I don't think I will. How do we do this? One of the things that, that gets me here is that, is that there, is, there is the word do, right? We have to do something. 
It's not just to sit back and relax. And Paul reminds us that we have that this do uh, is something that's important. In Romans 1, 21 through 23, he says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. And I'm going to pause right there on the word futile. Okay, this word uh, futile is... Literally, it means to, uh, to serve no purpose or to be completely ineffective. So when we read through this again, uh, I want you to think about that definition of uh, what the word futile means here. So completely ineffective, serving no purpose. So back to the Romans 121. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile completely ineffective in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So now that we know the glory of God, we honor him. We know God, and so we honor God. We know his mercy, his grace, his patience, his love, forgiveness, and justice. So those should be the things that we are reflecting in our lives. Now, thank you for allowing that. I guess you didn't, you didn't really allow it. I was going to do it whether or not you wanted me to. But uh, um, now we're going to come back to Corinthians. Um, and we will start in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 23, and 24. Now, Paul kind of breaks this up. He's, fair warning, he's going to give us some situations that uh, might not really make sense to us in our context right now, but the heart behind those situations is what's so important here. So kind of bear with me and, and, and track with me as we go through this, um, but I want you guys to really be listening and thinking through uh, what is the heart behind these situations? Okay, and how do those, how does that heart ultimately answer our question? Does my life reflect the glory of God? Okay, so 1 Corinthians 10, 23 and 24 says this, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own advantage, but the good of his neighbor. Now that phrase, all things are lawful, this is actually the second time we've heard it in Corinthians. Uh, if you guys remember a couple of months ago, back in chapter six, he uses this phrase, this, this terminology um, to uh, explain or, or before he starts his conversation on sexual immorality. And now we're getting it within the context of food. Okay, something important to notice here is that the first time Paul uses this. He's talking about a sin that does damage to yourself. He talks about how sexual immorality can be a damaging sin that hurts you from the inside out. And now he talks about it in the context of food. And he uses the helpful and building up not to talk about you. So all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful, not in building up yourself, but in building up your neighbor. All things are lawful, but not all things build up the other. 
So now he's not talking about ourselves, but he's talking about those around us, the people we encounter in our lives, our family, our friends, the people that, who are actually our next door neighbors, the ones who live across the street, our coworkers, all of these people. I couldn't help it. We got to go back to Moses. Sorry. Back in Exodus 33, 16, uh, Moses, in, in his pleading with God to see God's glory, he, he says this. He says, For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other person on the face of the earth? You see, Moses' experience on this mountain, while it would be a great experience for you to have personally, it would probably do amazing things for you to just see the Lord. Moses' concern was not for himself, it was for his people. When he came down off the mountain, he came down to bring the glory of God, the commandments, the direction of the Lord to his people, not just for his people, but so all would know the glory of God. Likewise, the Corinthian church, as well as ourselves, should be distinct. That word distinct, right? Something that is set apart, something that is very noticeable. We should be distinct from the cultures we are in. If you are blending in with the crowd, you are not distinct. The Corinthians should have obviously been followers of Christ. And so we should be living our lives in obvious allegiance and following of Jesus. This distinction is ultimately made in how we help others in how we view the other. So everything we should do, we do, should be for the benefit of our neighbors, that they may know the glory of God, God's mercy, his grace, his patience, his love, forgiveness, and justice. Those invisible qualities that are sometimes so hard to just grasp and understand, making them visible to people who don't see them. So are we distinct? Is the way that we're living our life, even in its minutia, is it something that calls out the glory of God? Now, Paul is going to give us a, uh, a couple of situations here. And like I said, fair warning, these are weird. They're kind of hard to understand and they don't make a ton of sense right away. Some of it is a contextual thing. Some of it's just because, like for me, he uses the word conscience so many times and I'm like, I, it's one of those things where I would, like, I would just close my Bible and be like, I'll get back to this later. I'll figure it out later. Okay. Um, so we'll start up again in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 25. And this is going to go through 30, but we're going to break it up a little bit here. So uh, in, verse, in 1 Corinthians 10, 25, Paul says this, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Right off the bat, what's a meat market? We buy our meat at uh, Whole Foods. You might get meat at Ralph's or Vaughn's or any other grocery store. That's a meat market where you buy your meat. Now in Corinthians or in Corinth, um, 
the, if you look at the topography of where they are, they're on this little, I think it's called an isthmus. I don't know. Don't, I'm not a geography teacher. Um, it's this little like land bridge from one larger area to another. And in Corinth, they would not have had enough room to graze livestock. So the main like staple food that they would have eaten in the way of meat would have been fish. They're close to water on both sides. Um, they would have eaten a lot of fish. And any meat that came in, like if you wanted like some good goat tacos, um, you would have had to have gone into the meat market to buy the meat. Now, this meat usually came from people traveling from that one big uh, landmass to the other. And on their travels, they would stop in at Corinth. Corinth was like the hub of everything that was fun and good happening. And they would stop in at the temple and they would sacrifice their meat and they would enjoy a meal. The priests would enjoy the meal. They'd dine with demons, right? And then they'd go on their way. Well, I don't know how, if any of you have ever slaughtered a goat. There's a lot more meat than you can eat in one meal. And so anything extra would go into these markets and they'd be sold. So in a way, once removed, you could be buying meat that had once been sacrificed to an idol. And what Paul is saying here is he's saying, go into the meat market, buy the meat, give thanks to the meat, because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He's referencing Psalm 24 when he says this, and the, and the Jewish people there would have like lit up right away. They're like, oh yeah, Jesus, the Lord is king and he is... Uh, He has dominion over everything. He created everything. He set the foundations of everything. By his word, all we see and know is created and held together and living and moving. And he is the rightful king over all of these things. And so Paul is saying, don't get caught up in these questions and and these little things. He says, when you focus your mind, when you focus out your mind, that the Lord is king, the next moves will follow. He's not setting up a law or specific rules of legalism here. He's describing a rule that comes from the Latin word regula. It's like a regulation, okay? And this word is actually closer in definition to the word scaffold. And as a teacher, when I hear scaffold, I light up, right? Because that's everything I do. If I want to teach someone how to write a paragraph, We start by writing sentences and then we move on from there. And something that we do is I get this question every time I tell my students they're going to write a paragraph. How many sentences is it? Right? And if you've ever been in school, which I'm assuming everyone here has, um, the standard rule of thumb, right, is three to five sentences is a paragraph. I've read paragraphs that are like five pages long. Okay, the rule is not the end-all, be-all, this is how you do this, right? But it's the starting place. And so if we start from a posture of recognizing that the Lord is the king over all, the next thing we do, how we make our decisions, if that informs our decision and builds our life, that's a good scaffold to wrap our life up. If we are building these things around God's glory, and we recognize that he is the one true king, the next thing that happens is we become distinct. People will know that we are followers of that king. 
Now, Paul goes on into a second situation here, and, and this is the one that gets, that gets me. I don't, I'm, I'm going to keep saying it because it's like, I, I still, like I read it, I have to take a second to like read through it because he, he starts asking questions and using all this stuff. But uh, track with me for a second here, and, uh, and we'll get through this. So this is 1 Corinthians 10, 27 through 30. It says, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Just like, just like in the market, right? If you go to dinner um, and somebody gives you food, eat it. Don't ask questions. Just eat it. Be thankful and respectful to your, uh, your host and, uh, and recognize that this is the Lord's. But... If someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that which I give thanks? The question that Paul is raising here is not to eat or not to eat. Instead, the question is, is in my eating, am I being helpful and building up of the brother offering me this food? Am I glorifying God in the things that I am doing and how I am loving my neighbor? I love surfing. That's an understatement. I really, really, really like surfing. It's one of my, it's my favorite activity. And um, usually when, uh, when you love surfing, you end up talking about it a lot and people who don't surf find out that you surf. And the next question is, hey, teach me how to surf. So this came up. I had a, a couple of roommates that had moved um, out to California from North Carolina. And they were like, let's do this. Let's surf. And I was like, well, um, I kind of want to go surfing. So I could go surf. And if you guys are there, maybe at some point, you'll like watch me and figure it out and we'll have a great time. This is going to be great. This will be so much fun. I'll surf and you'll learn how to surf. This is perfect. So we go down to the beach and there are so many red flags in this story that um, I lose count like as I'm going through it. My first red flag that I should have noticed that I did not notice was uh, my father-in-law was going down with us and he gets there, takes one look at the waves and goes, I'm not going out. And I was like, well, I think it looks fun. I'm going out. Come on guys, we can do this. We got this. We'll, we'll all go out together. This will be fun. Um, my second red flag is as we're getting ready, um, my buddy looks at me and goes, man, this wetsuit is so uncomfortable. And I look at him and he's got it on backwards. <laughs> and, uh, and so we, we flipped that thing around and as we're, we're taking all this time to get ready, my other friend who actually, he knows how to surf, like he's learned how to surf. He goes down and he's, he's paddling out before we get down there. Well, by the time we flip his wetsuit around and get everybody ready and, and, and start walking down there. He's sitting on the beach. And I'm like, Tyler, what are you doing? And he's like, I couldn't get out. And I'm like, oh, 
that's a bummer because I'm going to go surf and you're going to sit here on the beach. Come on, guys, we got this. Let's go. And we're going out. And I don't know if I'm up to three or four red flags yet, but um, on our way out, the, the guys who were paddling, they could not get out. Like it was just so hard. But I was so determined that I was going to surf that I let my board kind of dangle behind me and I got behind him and I start pushing his board, right? And he's on the front going like, am I doing it right? And, and, and it just, it was like this, it was just this, this horrible, horrible situation of me wanting to surf and them putting their full trust in me and me totally ruining the experience. We get out, finally get out there and, and it dawns on me when they ask, so how do we get back in? And I'm like, oh, no. Like, now, now we're out here. I'm responsible for you guys, and I'm, I'm realizing this is not good. My, my own selfish, my selfishness, right? My desire to build myself up ended up hurting and discouraging my brothers. I was not helpful. I was not building them up in how we did this. So you see, the situation can change. But the heart behind everything we do should be the same. How we help and how we look at those who are around us is going to determine not necessarily if we're good or not, but how are we reflecting and what are we reflecting? We're reflecting God's glory or are we reflecting our own glory, my glory, right? This, this futile idol, right, that I can make of myself, this thing that is unmagnificent and unrenowned in comparison to the glory of the immortal God. Me, a mortal man, trying to glorify himself, falls flat on his face every time when compared to the immortal God. So Paul finishes off this conversation here in the last, uh, in kind of just a last, a last saying to, to the Corinthians. He says this in 10.31 and then into 11.1. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, it doesn't matter the situation. In whatever situation you find yourself in, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of the many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Does my life reflect the glory of God or the glory of the world? Either way, it's going to reflect one. Either way, I'm going to glorify something. The glory of the world is really just the glory of myself. The glory of God is God's goodness, his mercy, his grace, his patience, his love, forgiveness, and justice. Those invisible qualities made visible. So asking myself this question came up with two things. Two ways to know if we are glorifying God. Number one, we should be distinct, demonstrating God's goodness in all we do, making those invisible qualities 
visible in how we spend our money, in how we spend our free time, in how we take our comfort. If you're living your best life now, it's probably glorifying to only you. All this is the Lord's. The earth in its fullness is God's. Enjoying creation with the right mindset that God is king. He is the king of glory. We start to align ourselves into how our life should be lived. We build that scaffold up and then the decisions we make are informed by God's glory. Ultimately, everything we do is not to seek our own advantage, but the advantage of others. So that leads me to number two, not seeking your own advantage, but the advantage of your neighbor. Serve your neighbor. This is something that like, I, I catch myself doing this all the time. I, we had some neighbors just move. Uh, they were like literally our next door neighbors and they moved. Um, the day that they were moving was the day that I got out of school. And so I'm on summer break. I'm super excited to get to go rest. And I'm going home and I'm like, oh, I should really go offer um, some help to that moving van. But school just got out. I'm exhausted. I just went through the whole graduation. I'm tired and went and go home and take a nap, right? Those little opportunities, right? Sometimes we miss them. And I, and I realized afterwards, I was like, oh my gosh, this was too little, too late. Because I went over and asked him and he's like, oh no, we're all done. It's all good. Now I feel like, you know, I'm like, oh man, I just, I, I shouldn't have waited, right? This is a backwards thinking to the glory of the world. Anything, else, anything that builds you up, anything that makes you stronger is probably a good thing. But the glory of God says, no, turn that onto your neighbor. Take what builds you up and build up your neighbor. Again, we, we demonstrate God's glory through his goodness, his mercy, his grace, his patience, his love, forgiveness, and his justice. Um, Zach Bloom loaned me a book after when we were going through this. We were kind of talking through these things, and he gave me this book. I highly recommend the first half. I haven't read the second half yet, but I highly recommend the first half. Um, and the author of this book is uh, Justin Whitmull Early, and uh, the book is called The Common Rule. And it's, it's like, if you've ever heard of those like 10 habits of highly effective people, it's something similar to that, but it's, it's these ideas of creating habit. Um, and I loved this quote that he has in there, and he's, he's talking about um, the world, right? Encountering the world, and he uses the word, the word secularism. So in our account, encountering the world, um, he Justin is, uh, he was a missionary and now he's a mergers and acquisitions lawyer. So I love that he had kind of this, this backwards uh, flip-flop of like being called out of mission work into the world. And, and this is what he has to say about this uh, encounter with the secular world. Um, he says, secularism is not a conclusion. It is a mood. That means we cannot disrupt it with an argument. We must disrupt it with a presence. And we are fortunate to have a great example of that presence. In John 14, 9, uh, this is just after uh, the disciples have had 
the, the Last Supper and Philip goes to Jesus and he asks this of Jesus. He says, uh, Jesus, he, he asks Jesus to show them the Father. And I, and I have to imagine that he was hoping for something like what Moses had. I have to imagine that he wanted to glow at the end of this experience, right? And Jesus's answer to him is, is almost like disappointing, but then it's like really, really encouraging. He says to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. This last line in Corinthians, when Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. When I heard that, I thought, wow, bold statement, Paul. That's pretty big. You're calling people to copy you because you're copying Jesus? This idea that, that, that we copy Jesus, uh, to me, it, it, sometimes it sounds, it sounds outrageous. It sounds so difficult and it sounds so out of my ability to do. But then I'm reminded of this. In, in Colossians 1, 15 to 20, it says this, He, Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The Corinthians had Paul. Your neighbors have you. When I think through that, it's, I'm like, it blows my mind, right? It takes you so far away from anything maybe you've thought possible. But it is possible. When I ask that question, does my life reflect the glory of God or the glory of these lesser things? I have to be honest with myself and say, I don't have it all together. I can't stand up here and say my life reflects the glory of God and I've got it all and it's good and all these things are great. I miss opportunities with my neighbors. There's things I wish I did that I didn't do and it's hard, right? Sometimes I fall into that trap and I glorify myself. And I remember that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But in that same sentence, in Romans 3.23, it goes on to say, and are justified through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Ultimately, God's goodness, all of these great things, his mercy, his love, his patience, his forgiveness, all of these things are brought together in his justice through Jesus on the cross. Don't forget who you are. Paul is writing to Christians and I'm speaking to people who are of sound mind. You're not morons, right? 
You guys understand and can hear these things. You have been filled with the Holy Spirit. You are children of the King of glory. And that Holy Spirit is not some lesser form of God, right? It is the Spirit of the living God dwelling inside of us. Lean on that good news of Jesus that the cross took care of it all. And as we start to realize these things and we start to live these things out, our lives start to glorify the Lord and we become distinct. Be encouraged today that this is not out of your reach. Like I said this, and I feel like I, I got to say it like five times because it's just like so invigorating, right? The Holy Spirit, the, the Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you. How crazy is that? Sometimes I forget, and I think my forgetting takes me down this rabbit trail of glorifying myself and not glorifying the Lord. So be encouraged today. Let me pray for you guys, and we'll wrap this thing up. Holy Spirit, you are with us now. God, that simple prayer of, Holy Spirit, help me. I'm a sinner. Help me. We know that you are faithful and you are just to answer that cry. And God, today, as we go from here, encourage us in your your goodness, in your mercy, in your grace, in your love, in your forgiveness, in your patience, and your justice. God, help us to be distinct to our neighbors so that the world may know the glory of God and be saved. Father, thank you for all that you have done for us. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your spirit that empowers us. And it's in your son's name we pray these things. Amen.